A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John. My name is Dylan. And today we have a special guest, Donovan Grant, joining us. Uh, you may know him from the TBU Comics cast from a while back. He used to be a regular contributor on that. And he's kind enough to join us today because the subject matter we're dealing with, with Orpheus Rising, is of um, an African-American superhero and... Um, representation. Representation and covers um, some issues related to the African-American community and Donovan is of that ethnicity, so we asked him to join us, and he politely did. Because we don't want to be two white guys talking about representation and, and African-American community. That just doesn't seem right. right. Why not? Well, you know, because... <laughs> I mean, we, we can do it. It's just we don't want the, the perception to be that we're two white guys trying to mansplain, or I guess that would be... white <laughs> Whitesplain? Whitesplain. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to whitesplain the situation. Yeah. Uh, this is educational after all. Yes, yeah, exactly. New vocabulary. <laughs> White splain. There's a new uh, vocab word for educationally. You gonna well jump right in. Oh, Tell hi. us what white splaining uh, is. Hi guys. So for those not familiar, mansplaining is when a man tries to talk feminism in a way that is trying to put it through his scope and trying to explain feminism through his scope to a woman, trying to tell a woman what feminism is about or what uh, being a woman. But it's basically. Someone speaking on a subject in which they don't have any authority or experience. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a white guy, middle class, grew up lower middle class, and John's a white I'm guy. in the same situation. Yeah, same thing. So, us trying to talk about a community other than our own uh, in America with all the – and especially contemporarily speaking, all the tension, all the things going on. In America, it just wouldn't be appropriate for us. We'd be, you know, try, we'd be talking about the African American community when neither of us have any real experience or perspective onto what it, what's really going on. The perspective of, and I'm a very well read guy. I do a lot of research. I try and be a world citizen and a very uh, educated person. So speaking on a subject that I am not able to speak on would be very poor form for me. Yeah, so thankfully we have Donovan joining us. Um, we'll move on here in Education Alley, and we'll talk about the name Orpheus, which is the name the hero of this story has. Orpheus was a legendary Thracian musician, poet, and prophet in ancient Greek religion and myth. The major stories about him are centered on his ability to charm all living things and even stones with his music. His attempt to retrieve his wife Eurydice from the underworld and his death at the hands of those who could not hear his divine music. So it, it definitely has that classic Greek uh, context for the name, which is really interesting, really cool that they went with that. Yeah, I mean, we don't really get a ton that relates this particular Orpheus to the, the Greek mythology in this story, but if we see this character again, maybe that'll be expanded on. Oh, yeah, and that'd be really cool to see. Um, it, you know, it, when you think about it, the, the Greek tales are, are the original superheroes. 
So yeah, they do definitely call the superheroes the modern day myths. Yes, or the American myths. Um, I've heard that term as well. Yeah, so it's kind of cool, kind of a cool touch. Next one we have is Crime Lab Studios, which was a billboard in the Russian area of town. And uh, Crime Lab Studios is an inker that works on several Marvel titles as well as Spawn. Which has nothing at all to do with this story, but I just found it interesting when I looked up Crime yeah. Lab Studios. That, John, you're the one who caught that. That was kind of cool. I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out to me. So you're saying they ripped them off? Well, not ripped them off, but maybe paid homage. I think this <laughs> I think this story is older than, than that particular uh, person or people's work with uh, comics. So, so just, maybe they took it from this story. Maybe they ripped them off. Ah, um, it's most likely. <laughs> our, our next one here is Tovarish. This is what Rasputin says to Batman on a couple of occasions. It's a Russian word meaning friend, friend or comrade. Also a middle-class daily paper published in St. Saint, Saint Petersburg, Russia from March 1906 to January 1908. It was not officially affiliated with any particular party, but was the mouthpiece of the left cadets, the Constitutional Democratic Party. Uh, Mensheviks, a fascist faction of the Russian socialist movement also had a voice in the paper. And Menshevik means minority and Bolshevik means majority, which were the two uh, factions within that socialist movement. So it's kind of interesting. Symbolism. Yes. Well, they have a lot of symbolism. And it, it, Batman, I've noticed through our time on Bat Books for Beginners, does a lot of pulling from Cold War, Cold War era and uh, revolutionary era Russia and the 1950s nor aesthetic of American film. So it's, it's kind of cool. They, they keep a very uh, weird mix of things going on as far as how they tell and what they represent with their stories. And the next one here is the one you wanted to jump in on, Donovan. It's Aparo Park and Dixon Docks. These are both named for famous Batman contributors. Uh, Jim Aparo worked on Batman as an artist in the 1970s and 80s. And Chuck Dixon... Chuck Dixon is a writer for Batman during the era we are currently covering. He worked on most of the Batman series in the 90s and early 2000s. And if his years of writing in the Batman universe are not enough accolades, he co-created Stephanie Brown. Well, yeah, to put put this in kind of a microscopic perspective, uh, because these are two giants, and I just, you know, like to praise them. Aparo drew the famous issue of Jason Todd, the death in the family. He drew Bane breaking Batman's back. He is a major artist on The Spectre. He was a major artist on Aquaman. He's like probably one of the most prolific. I mean, he's, he passed away in 1999, I believe. Um, no, he, he passed away in like 2005. But he's probably one of the more famous DC Comics write, uh, artists to ever grace the company. And Chuck Dixon basically ran Batman throughout the 90s. He wrote Detective Comics for several years. He wrote Robin for the first 100 issues. He came back for a a secondary run. He wrote the first 70-some-odd issues of Nightwing. He co-created the Birds of Prey. Um, He, you know, not only did he co-create Stephanie Brown, but he kind of started the wheels that got Nightwing and Oracle together. So these are two, like, you know, major, major... Uh, co-creators of Batman, they basically ran like the late from the late 80s to the late 90s. It was basically these guys kind of running the show, and um, uh, I always like like stuff like that. In the 90s, the geography of Gotham City was kind of established to where they paid a lot of homage with, uh, uh, I believe it was like uh, Finger Mission and Robinson Park was a big place homaging Jerry Robinson, and uh, 
there's a lot of like landmarks that that were all made up of Batman creators that they did here. So this was always you know a big fan, uh, a major like you know kind of geek uh, homage to the to the heavyweights of of yesterday. That's kind of awesome. I mean, it's it's cool that they continued that tradition of of naming places after creators and paying homage to those guys. Yeah, and we. I don't know if they do them now, but they did do them then. <laughs> well, I mean, like you know, we have Arapa, excuse me, Aparo Park and Dixon Dock. So right, and we've seen in a couple of the other Bat books stories that we've covered uh, streets named after other Batman uh, contributors as well. So it is nice to see that, and we always like pointing that out when we run across it. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so the next one here, uh, there was a couple places mentioned in this story by Orpheus in relation to escalation of hatred, and we're going to cover a couple of those here. First, first one will be uh, Kosovo, which is the inter-ethnic tensions of the 1980s in the region of Yugoslavia, as the country was named at the time. What's it now, John? Um, it's been broken up into several ones. I think Slovakia is one of them, um, or Slovenia, and I, I'm not sure what other <laughs> sorry, ones. Sorry to put you on the spot there. Um, Slobodan Milosevic. Slobodan Milosevic. That one. Started cultural oppression of the ethnic Albanian population in the region in 1989. The Albanians separated from Ser- from what is now Serbia in 1992, forming the Republic of Kosovo. In 1996, the Kosovo Liberation Army began fighting with Serbian and Yugoslav forces, starring starting in the Kosovo War. And I know that's come up in some other story we did, and I can't remember which one. Yeah, either, but yeah, th- that was a major thing. Uh, I was just a little kid, so I don't really have a good. Yeah, the only thing out of, of that it. that I remember is Slobodan Milosevic because that name was so interesting to me, and it was on the news a lot during that time. Yeah, I uh, remember that going on around like '99 during the end of the Clinton era, and uh, where I happen to live, there's actually a pretty big uh, uh, close Kosovo population in my part of town. So uh, this is true. <laughs> Yeah, that was the towards the end of the Kosovo War was around the turn of the century slash millennium. Um, and yeah, I do remember that as well on TV. Um, the next one we had is the streets of L.A., and I remember this more. Um, I'm assuming this is referring to the 1992 L.A. riots, but I'm not sure, so that's what I was going to talk yes. about. <laughs> uh, it's also yes. known as the Rodney King riots. They started in South Central L.A. on April 29th, 1992, the catalyst for the riots was the acquittal of four LAPD officers on the charge of using excessive force in the arrest of Rodney King. When these white officers were arresting Rodney, they tasered him, struck him with their batons 56 times, and tackled him to the ground. A total, at all total, there was over a billion dollars in property damage, and the rioting ended only after the National Guard and Marines were called in to assist local police. In total, 53 people were killed during the riots, and over 2,000 were injured. I remember that a little bit more. That's a little more fresh in my memory. Now, I did notice something when I was reading up on this because it had been a long time, obviously, since this happened. I had Rodney King and uh, Denny confused. Um, Kyle Kyle Denny, the truck driver who got pulled out during the riots out of his truck and beaten. Yeah. For some reason, I thought that was Rodney King, and I was way off. Wow, yeah. Well, it was also 10 when this happened. Yeah, yeah, given. Um yeah, you know, it was, it was a, that's a really dark passage, and unfortunately, that you know, we're still dealing with that in 2015. Yeah, and we'll definitely be coming back to that because I believe we're going to talk about Ferguson, Missouri, and the talking points, which mm-hmm. this sounded a lot to, to me like 
what happened in Ferguson. And you could, unfortunately, you could cite about 20 to 30 examples just in the past two to three years. That's true. That was just the one that came immediately yeah, to yeah. mind. The next one we have is the, the phrase Uncle Tom, which one of the deacon, deacons being one of the gangs, calls Orpheus an Uncle Tom. The phrase comes from an, is an epithet for a person who is slavish or excessively subservient to perceived authority figures, particularly when it's a black person who behaves in a subservient manner to a white, white people or a white person, or any person perceived to be complicit in the oppression of their own group. This, this epithet comes from the uh, works of Harriet Beecher Stowe in her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, there's something interesting when I was doing my reading up on this. Uncle Tom's Cabin was seen as a anti or a, a pro abolition yeah. book. But it also it, in in being pro abolition, it's it encouraged uh, the slaves to still be subservient mm-hmm. while seeking freedom and it, it had a very big tinge of pro pro Christianity for the slaves. Slaves being more Christian and basically, from what the way it seemed to me, assimilating into quote unquote white life, white culture, through being Christian and being accepted that way. Are you guys really not familiar with this term? I, I am. It's just we're, we're we're including it in our in our thing just right. so for, in case someone's not. And so, yeah, I, I mean I'll. I don't know. I don't know if they teach this in, in schools these days. But uh, I'm from Texas, so that we did, they didn't teach it at school at all. <laughs> I'm from the Texas public education system. It's explained away. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I, I like. I don't. I'm not going to throw like you know. Well, I'm black, so so I obviously know what it means. But I always thought it was a fairly not common, but fairly understood term. And you know, you, 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 it gets bandied about to this day. I mean. Don Lemon, I'm sure Don Lemon hears it all the time. So like, uh, and that's not me being political. That's you know kind of a general thing. So um, you know, it's 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 basically basically the idea of a sellout essentially. If 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 the historical background is a bit too complex to kind of swallow at once. Yeah, I I knew basically the general gist of of it. I did not know the specifics relating to Uncle Tom's Cabin, other than that's where the the phrase came from. So that was educational for me. Um, the other word we used in, descri- in describing Uncle Tom was epithet. An epithet is an adjective or descriptive phrase expressing a quality characteristic of the, the person or thing mentioned. So that was just a fancy way of saying it's a characteristic of the person. Um, our next one we have here is uh, rapid syncopation, referring to Orpheus's music. A variety of rhythms which are in some way unexpected, which make part or all of a tune or piece of music offbeat. More simply, syncopation is a general term for a disturbance or interruption of the regular flow or rhythm, or of rhythm. A placement of rhythmic stresses or accents where they wouldn't normally occur. Syncopation is used in many musical styles and is fundamental in styles such as jazz, hip-hop, progressive rock, ska, and many more. That list was huge. I just picked some of the ones people would be more familiar with. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's something that when you're talking music, uh, you're talking trees and lines as far as like influences and things like syncopation go so it's kind of cool to see you know them use that term in reference to orpheus who who uses sound waves a lot in his weaponry that's true i didn't even think of it in that terms because the the context of where this was used in the story was when he was doing his um 
not ballet, but his um, dance stuff yes. as kind of like I I saw it as just kind of keeping him like limber or exercising or or um, in shape. Yeah, the, the word is escaping me as far as um, fit. <laughs> no. Um, Graceful, Graceful, I guess, is kind of what lith. I'm thinking. Lithe, yeah, something yeah. like that. So I, I lith, yeah. lithe. I actually know um, quite a few dancers in, uh, in the Seattle dance scene, and oh my god, the, they are in such amazing shape. You know, all that movement, and it's not it's not the bulky muscle. It's very lithe. It's very sinewy muscle. But dang, are they in shape? <laughs> yeah, and he had a background as a professional dancer before becoming Orpheus, which is covered in this story. Before becoming a comic book character. Yeah, before <laughs> before becoming a superhero, he was a, a dancer. Mr. Yes. T didn't want to be a bad man. He wanted to be a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you, you're up next. All right, uh, Griots. So it's a member of a class of traveling poets, musicians, and storytellers who maintain a tradition of oral history in parts of West Africa. What's interesting is I, I don't remember what country he listed. I think he listed like he listed Kenya, Kenya, which is Central East. But he he said he learned from Griots, which are West African. Well, maybe they traveled to Kenya. Or maybe, maybe they I, just decided to not give us a West African country. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of weird. When I looked it up, I was like, hold on a second. Kenya is not West Africa. Maybe the, the writer genuinely didn't know. Or maybe, yeah, the writer's like, I know Kenya. I know the term griots. We'll use those two together. Why not? That's a, always a possibility. I don't own a globe or a map. And the internet and the wasn't. Eisner goes to. <laughs> and the Eisner goes to. And the internet wasn't as uh, prominent a tool in robust in 2000 as it, as it is now. I don't um, think anybody noticed. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, you know, it's 20, 2015, 2016, and I noticed, dang it, I noticed. Yeah, we tend to pull things like that, and we're like, the average person probably wouldn't have noticed this, but since we're <laughs> digging into this, we noticed yeah. it. Um, our next term here is the Caucasus Mountains. Caucasus Mountains. Rasputin was left there as a kid. That's that's the context for the story. It's a mountain system in Eurasia between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea in the Caucasus region. The Caucasus Mountains include the Greater Caucasus Range, which extends from the Caucasian Natural Reserve in the vicinity of Sochi to the northeastern shore of the Black Sea, Sochi being where the most recent Olympics were, uh, aligned west-northwest to east-southeast and reaching nearly to Baku on the Caspian Sea and the Lesser Caucasus, which runs parallel to the Greater Range at a distance averaging about 100 kilometers south. The highest peak in the Caucasus range is Mount Elbrus of the Greater Caucasus, which rises to the height of uh, 18,510 feet above sea level. And that's all we had there for um, Education Alley. We'll move right into our talking points here. And Donovan, um, feel free to jump in whenever you have something to say. The only bad thing that we really had was the narrator. And... This might be more of a personal preference than anything. Um, I found the very purple prose a little bit hard on my brain. See, I, I I thought with a name like Orpheus, it was kind of appropriate. And I mean, for example, here uh, I still haven't gotten to see it yet. I really want to see it. Uh, the new Spike Lee movie, Chirac. Uh, they use prose. It, it's a retelling of I can't recall which one of a Greek. Uh, uh, I was watching a review of that today, like Lost, I don't know, but Lost Strata or something. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think that's it, actually. Yeah. So it, it's. I don't know when you're you're, you're talking Greek, you're talking Roman, you're talking uh, a reference to a play. Having that flowery prose that you're know, using that type of thing really seems appropriate. Um, 
not to agree this. this it's, it, I think this was an example of a first-time Batman writer really wanting a story to tell and really trying to make it sound effective. And it, it may have gone over the top a bit because this is written by Alex Simmons, uh, who is a black writer. And he mainly, from what I re- researched, he mainly writes or has written uh, Archie stories. He really doesn't have any other like mainstream big two superhero comic work to speak of as of last week. So um, <laughs> when, I, when I researched him, so I imagine that he really had. I, I can tell that he really had a story to tell, I and mean, I think it's pretty obvious reading the story. But in doing so, he may have come, I mean, the narration comes off a bit uh, melodramatic, and that can hinder the intensity of the story that he's trying to get across. I don't think it kills the story, but I, I would agree that like it, it is a little much. And and that you know that honestly that leads right to the second point there that this has a lot more narration than comic books of this era. Like when when we're reading Judge Dredd or we're reading well that wasn't this era. Oh this era. oh no no <laughs> oh obviously but, oh you're, you're saying there's another one that had a lot of narration yeah yeah uh, uh, Watchmen there's a ton of narration in that late seventies mid eighties range of comic books they use a lot of of narration a lot of thought bubbles. It kind of it's gone away a little bit, a little bit more storytelling through art in the contemporary era. But this harkened back a lot to the heavy, the narration heavy storytelling device. So I, it, yeah, I think it's kind of a throwback. I think I wonder if Simmons thought he should he, that was either the most effective way to tell the story. I don't think it was, or if because he he read those comics and was inspired by those comics of like you know ten years prior. And that very well could be. I I you know I think that kind of ties in with the purple prose well i like the prose i do think it was a little bit much it was overdone um i will jump in on this as well and say that this reminded me of a pretty classic detective story and so you're talking about a a different era there as well because we don't really have that same style of detective story anymore we get more of the law and order type procedural detective stories now than than really kind of what was going on here um, and so I wonder if that maybe had something to do as well with more of the narration. That's a good point. That's something I hadn't thought of. Um, I was personally a little confused as to whose voice the narrator was, at least on the first read-through. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. It seemed to be a mixture of first and third person when talking about Orpheus. So I think he's the narrator, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't think he is. I think, But I think that like it does – the caption boxes do switch between third person omniscient Batman and Orpheus, and it doesn't really signal uh, when it does that. I remember I was talking to Stella uh, when I was when I was on Backward Oracle recently about how after 2004, when Identity Crisis came out, they started in DC Comics. They started really color coding the characters' narrations, so you knew exactly who was talking by the by the way of the their insignia being uh, emblazoned on the captions at first, and then you can follow the color codes of uh, who was talking when. But they didn't do that here, so like it was a little, again, not nothing detrimental. But I also was a little confused at times. I just brought that up to Dylan when we yeah. were chatting before. Um, ex- almost word for word, exactly what we talked about beforehand. I also brought up the font because if you notice on the really cu- current ones, generally each character has their own font as well, not just a specific color and a specific uh, background color of their text box. They generally have their own font as well. Which is very helpful. Very, very helpful. I I don't know what made them switch over. I'm glad they did. I wish they had thought of that sooner. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, to come back to what you said about sometimes it's Batman, I did find that when it was a specific person who was supposed to be talking, there was generally quotes 
or the caption box was a different color. The narrator was always green, and I think we saw blue and maybe yellow in there at times, and those were specific characters talking. So there was a little bit of distinction when it was specifically someone talking, but as far as just the straight narrator, it's still confusing to me exactly who it is. I tend to agree with you, Donovan, that I don't think it's Orpheus, but there's that one point where it's first person and not in quotes that makes me wonder if it is. It, it, I just found it, you know, and, and exact same thing as you guys, where it was the first read-through, and I was like, who, okay, is the narrator, uh, as, as you said, Donovan, third-person omniscient? Is it a character telling his story, nor style? Is it, you know, it's just, there's no real good indication. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we'll move on here to our good things then. Um, the first one we have is, I had struggled with coming up with a title for this. What I settled on was balancing support for your heritage with responsibilities of your job. And this is primarily revolving around Commissioner Akins. A community member tells him, you have chosen blue over black in reference to him saying that any bad police behavior will be dealt with through the proper channels. So what's interesting to me there is, is when you're leaning through the proper channels and, and when you're talking about Gotham, and traditionally Gotham's always been portrayed as everybody at all levels has someone on the take. You know, Commissioner Gordon wasn't on the take, but everyone around him was. Or, you, know, you don't know who's, who's what and who's got their hand in what honeypot there, so... Saying that you're going to deal with them through the uh, proper, quote unquote, proper channels doesn't, and we see this a lot too, even in, in contemporary society where cops get off scot free. Cops do something horrible and get off, you know, walk away. I don't know. If, I don't know if they're necessarily delving into that. Um, I promise I'm not going to be continuity cop here, but like the whole idea of Gotham being like a, like an, a, an, an incessantly and endlessly corrupt city. You know, it was introduced in year one, and I don't know if it was like you know set in stone as like the status quo of the city. Really, at this point, I think it's more along the idea, like the general idea that, like the the true to life idea that a black man serving in the government serves the government first and foremost, and not the needs of his own people. I mean, you see that with the president right now. I mean, this this is this thing kind of goes on all the time everywhere, and I don't know if it's like they're calling it. You know, you're on the take, just like everybody else, just, it, just like Jim Gordon probably was, as so much as as uh, as uh, Simmons is kind of calling into like you know, and you get you get you get it with like some of like the narrations, descriptions of Michael Atkins and like how he feels and how he describes to Batman later on about you know fear of the badge and stuff about how the responsibilities of reflecting on yourself and your community and what. You know, does your job matter, or does the or the law matter over your own people? That kind of thing. So I don't know if they, I don't think they're going for a Batman uh, continuity kind of thing, as it is sort of like the character and the character is a black man. So how does that reflect upon himself, his community, and the city, and how he chooses to uh, help police it? Yeah, related to that, um, what is your opinion? Um, I wrote down this question: Is there a problem? Is this a problem that any high-profile person that is part of a minority community might face with their community who feels that he or she maybe is focused on advancing themselves and not their community? Well, this is a problem. I think I think I don't think you can be a person of color, um, primarily a person of color, but you know, in some respects, any minority in America, and not have a without without that double consciousness of. Am I reflecting well of my people? We get to a certain age, I think. I mean, I, I didn't think about that really at all until I uh, was much, much older. But, and it kind of comes with all walks of life, you know, whether you're a cop 
whether you're a judge, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a podcaster. Um, there's elements of, you know, I like to be myself and minorities don't – minorities in America, you know, depending on where they live, if you're middle class, then you typically won't see yourself as a minority until the, until society reminds you. So in my life experience and honestly sooner rather, sooner or later, it's going to happen to everybody of a certain uh, societal status. Uh, there are instances where you feel you can't be more than this color of your skin and you have to represent in some way, whether, however you choose to represent it in a positive light or in a way that you feel that you can't escape from. And that's just, that's just kind of the nature of it. It's not really, that's just the kind of gift and the curse of, you know, being born how you are. That's just kind of how society perceives what we call as race. Um, I'm kind of getting to this a little bit heavier, uh, quicker than I thought to be, but um, that's that's that is that is a very. I talked about this on another podcast that I think people, uh, you know, some white people don't tend to recognize that as being legitimate, but it's always it, that's always like a real life, real uh, unending element to, you know, living in America of, a, of being of a certain ethnic background. That's an excellent insight right there. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for. Giving us insight, man. No problem. <laughs> so, do you guys have any? Do, do you, what do you guys? I mean, think about that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to try to come off as indicting oh, just no. by the nature no, no. of you know you don't know. Like, what, what do you? How do you perceive that now that I've said that? You know, that is always going to be a kind of a thing. Well, I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty culturally aware guy. You know, I, I know I'm. I'm. I don't have the perspective. I know I'm someone who's. Constantly learning and growing, but trying to gain perspective and trying to gain understanding. So I can't. I I always make the attempt to not make judgments, you know. And of course, that's something that it's ingrained in human nature. So it's something I have to fight. But it, it's, you know, I I'm I'm a I'm a white guy. I'm a white middle class guy. I understand where my privilege is. So I I, you know, I I don't feel like I I'm even qualified to give an opinion on this. Because it's something totally outside of my realm of perspective and understanding. I mean, well, I, I would imagine that like it's not so much an opinion as just you know as a recognition that it, that it exists. Right. You know, a, a big thing that, that I'll probably be talking about a lot more here and elsewhere is just you know the acknowledgement of existence. But I, I, th- I think I interrupted you. Go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. I was just going to add to that that um, as with Dylan, I try and treat everyone regardless of of minority status economic status, anything like that, treat them like a person and treat them, you know, with uh, a positive attitude of, you know, they're going to do a good job if I'm working with them for something, if I need uh, a service that they're providing, you know, that they're going to be professional, all that stuff. You know, I, I, I don't judge based on appearance, whether that be clothes or skin or age or anything like that. Um, but as, as you said, I do acknowledge that a lot of people don't a lot of people will prejudge a person based on appearance whether it be clothes whether it be um, piercings tattoos skin color anything like that any number of, of factors that someone can use to make a quick mental oh, I know exactly who this person is without actually having talked to them and learned what type of a person they are and, and it's beyond racism it's classism it's you know mm-hmm. uh, homophobia or biophobia it, it's Islamophobia, or you know what have you, it's anti-Semitism, and I mean, I, I it's something that you know, e- even being someone who you know knows that I 
do and John as well know that we do our best to not have those opinions and we, we are very conscious and aware. We know that even that we, you know, we're aware a majority of society is and a majority of of life is in America is under that constant microscope and constantly being forced to represent a community regardless if they, you know, if they have anything to do with the community. You know, you have a good example is Islamophobia. You have people in this country who are Sikh. You have people in this country who are Hindu and they are still getting violence directed at them based on their, you know, people assuming they're Muslim. It's fear of the other. Yeah, exactly. It's xenophobia. Well, it's also um, kind of going back to the original point to kind of zero in on it. Uh, there's, you know, you, you guys can have, you know, a very benign and neutral perspective of, you know, well, this guy's good, so I'm bringing him in, even if he walks a different path of life than I do. But the guy, like, like just, just to kind of paint an example, you know, you bring me in here to kind of give perspective that you guys uh, don't innately have, and that's completely fine. And I'm not, I'm going, I don't, I don't want to present as though I'm, I'm a, that I'm putting that in, in a negative light, not, nothing whatsoever. I'm, I'm very glad you did it. At the same time, in, in an instance like that, there would be one that I talked about where like, okay, now I, I have to do a good job doing that. Otherwise, I will be perceived as a sellout or I'll be perceived as ignorant or I won't be able to get a point across that I want to. And I will be letting, either be letting myself down or people who don't agree with me. Like there, might, there might be um, uh, podcast listeners of color who says, I don't know what he's talking about. That's not, I, don't, I don't go with that, do that thing. And they don't realize that they do. Um, so it's, it's, everyone operates in this country under racial bias. That's not, that's not, that's sort of like our original sin as Americans. And that's not really anything that we can help because none of us were born in the 1800s, but that's sort of like something that we're kind of, you know, put in, we're kind of thrown into and we, we need to learn how to deal with. No, and part of this comic book, which is very interesting to me, this, this five issue miniseries that, this is a black writer trying to tell race, talk about race in a Batman story as best he can, and I think he does a, uh, you know, not to show my hand, but I think overall, in terms of that element, he does a pretty good job. But not every, no, no one is completely and a thousand percent crystal clear on how to deal with race. You know, I mean, like because we're all dealing with with the sins of people who are long since dead, and we're kind of you know picking up after their mess. So it's very. It's a very tricky thing. No one's always, not everyone's always going to get it right. Many people get it wrong and then give up and can, you know, not have the conversation and then get angry about it. But uh, I think that the effort to at least listen and put yourself in certain perspectives and kind of break down those societal made-up barriers, like the idea that race is actually a thing because it isn't, uh, can help you know lend one to a different understanding. And that that was a very Soapboxy platitude, and I promise not to do it again. <laughs> oh, no, please do it. You know, it's, it's outstanding perspective, and something that, you know, it's something that we would never be able to one portray or two, you know, have the depth of understanding of that, you know, that platitude of, of that soap as you call it, the soapboxy platitude. What we call it is speaking truth and speaking opinion. That's what we, you know, <laughs> not not to boil down everything that was was just talked about in in, in what Donovan was saying, but. When, while listening to him, the phrase that came to mind was institutionalized racism, where that is those cultural biases that we don't necessarily know that we have about race, um, because it seems like everyone, as far as like the media coverage and what we interact with on a daily basis, it seems like the majority hold those beliefs that are you know racist beliefs. They're just couched in everyday, so we don't really think about it. 
And then when you stop yes. and do think about it, then you realize we really shouldn't be using that word or thinking those thoughts or judging these people that way just because it's what we've always done. Well, look at the, you know, a great example of that is Redskins, the the football team. Yeah, that there that, was a, a couple of years ago, there was a push by a lot of sports broadcasters to not use that, to call them the Washington football team or, you know, Washington. And for some reason, that just dropped off. And I don't know why. And everyone this year has been back to using the team name for them, which I personally do my very best not to use because it is a very offensive yes, name. I, I agree. And when I'm using it, I'm, use, I'm using it in context. Please don't think that I, I support the, that team. Definitely don't support that team but uh, or their, their name or the views I hope. But, you know, you it's a constant battle to get them to change their name. They've lost the patent, the copyright for that name. They have white fans, and I think it was uh, the Daily Show. It might have been. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, you remember that one. Yeah. So where they had a entire conversation with white fans, saying, "So you don't think this is an offensive name?" Well, no, it's our tradition. It's our, you know, it's the name we've. It's like, hold on, dude. Are are you really saying these words? Are these these noises coming out of your mouth in that order? And you're presenting that as an idea? Yeah, that, that that's what I was talking about earlier. Like 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 the acknowledgement of existence and. Like oh, and this, I've, I've talked about this before. I've dealt with this before a lot. This this has been a very exciting year this year, where um, <laughs> you're trying to talk about a pro- the way that you deal with the problem is by acknowledging it exists. And when you bring in something up that people are comfortable with, you know, people naturally don't like change. But there's also like you know an imagined indictment that kind of leads to this sort of like perceived attack. Where like uh, there's something as benign as uh, this is surprisingly political, but like you know like the Star Wars trailer where like you know. Dude pops up, takes off his helmet, and he's like, you know, a black guy. And people kind of, you know, get their panties in a bunch. Like, they're trying to say something about Star Wars and us fans that we don't like by, by putting this woman and this black guy here. And they're kind of, you know, bringing up an argument that's not even being brought up. They're just, you know. And people are, you know, kind of taking out their bat at something that they don't even realize. And it's an element of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just the kind of curse that we kind of go that we kind of go through. I think that, like... Uh, you know, again, not not to, not to stray too far from this topic, but what what this story at least attempts to do is bring about the conversation naturally. You know, Batman is like one of the most uh, white power fantasy characters uh, in pop culture and media, and yet he is still my favorite. He is my favorite combo character, and he always will be. But I like the fact that um, and feel free, feel free to stop me from getting ahead of myself. But he he questions that, like you know, he doesn't question it long because Batman rarely questions himself, but he does get in a position where at least for a moment, he thinks like you know the good that he feels that he's done and tries to believe that he's done. He realizes that there's a whole other dimension that he's completely been ignorant about, and he feels impotent at least for a half second. And then the story continues, and he can figure this out. We will come back to that because um, there's a talking point about Nightwing where uh, is in that section where Batman is questioning himself, and I I do want to get back to that. Um, but let's table that for a second and move on to our, our next point here, which is the uh, racial profiling in this story. There's a sign that someone is holding when the um, – what was the gang name? I, I uh, Deacons. 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 Yeah. When the Deacons are being arrested and it, and it says, what are you checking, gang colors or skin colors? And I thought that was very poignant. I mean, obviously, the writer and artist put that in intentionally to be poignant. But just as you were just saying about raising questions, that's what this book does. And I hopefully, for people who read this book, I mean, I realize it's now a 14, 15-year-old book. 
Um, I don't know how many people are going to be able to go pick it up and read it and have those conversations amongst their friends, but hopefully they do. Um, I thought this was a very good uh, example of that. Well, and it's especially considering, you know, like, you know, I keep bringing up current news, things that are going on in America. It, it, this is a conversation that is fortunately being held. I'm just uh, sad that it didn't happen when this was, you know, 15 years ago as much. Yeah, that is kind of. But, the perspective of being 15 years from now and how poignant most of these things are and how they don't feel like we've had that conversation and gotten to the right side of it is pretty sad. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, but this is something where, and I, I think Simmons did a phenomenal job of it, is is raising that question, is you know pu- pushing to the forefront an uh, uncomfortable conversation. And when we're talking about you know the racial profiling here, we've seen a lot of it in contemporary times, unfortunately. But this brings up in a really good way. It's like, hey, why are you why are you harassing these guys who aren't you know maybe they aren't deacons, maybe they are, but they haven't done anything worthy of being arrested. There's no probable cause aside from their skin color. Well, I mean, this is this is done as as recent as this uh, month or maybe last month with Dark Knight Three: The <coughs> Master Race, where. Uh, uh, like a black guy's getting chased by cops, and like for literally no reason, probably because it's Frank Miller, because he, uh. he likes to see Batman beat up cops. But also, like that, that kind of, it was kind of so bizarrely and, and abstractly done that I, I, when I was reviewing the comic for the website, I kind of missed it that was going on. But um, you know, you have books like uh, uh, Icon from Milestone, where I don't know if you guys are aware of that, but like um. Dwayne McDuffie created a character where he and his psychic rocket show up to like a hostage situation in issue one, and because they're they're black and they're in costumes, the cops immediately turn their guns on them to be continued, <laughs> and it's like those kind of things where um, uh, you know, like like a lot a lot of these guys in these comics aren't you know like like you know fallen angels. I mean, they're 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 gangsters, they're killers, they're drug dealers, but there's like you know there's like um, you know like like the, the it reminds me of a Kendrick Lamar song where he talks about how it like, like the skin color is the first thing they see or the first thing that many biased cops see is I don't want to go. I don't want to, you know, propagandize an anti-cop uh, platform, but uh, many crooked cops that, that, that proliferate the country will see the skin color and like, you know, just make a judgment call based on bias. And some of that is more actively racist than others, but that's all, you know, at the same time, if, you know, if some of us see, uh, a ratty looking black dude walking down the street, not looking very well kempt, you know, they'll have a natural judgment call on them, whether that's, that's accurate or not. Same thing as, you know, a, a raggedy looking white guy and, and so forth. I mean, we, I, and I don't want to repeat myself or we, we, I don't want to kind of get into this uh, circular motion, but it's the idea that like these things don't really get talked about in comics. And DC is a very, very like stalwart, straightforward, superhero y company that they really don't get into it that much unless it's like, Green Arrow, Green Lantern in the 70s. And because Batman deals with crime a lot more now, uh, that's why I kind of, again, appreciate this story for kind of, you know, involving him into it. Well, I mean, you know, to bring it to another, bring it another pop culture reference in there because you can never get to many of those, uh, Key and Peel, which was, was a show on uh, Comedy Central by, I believe they're both uh, half black, half white. That's right. But uh, they had a, an intro, an opening to their show where it's a black, uh, black kid walking down the street, just you know, headphones on, hoodie on, and cops start to pull up behind him. So he puts the hood up, and on the side of the hood is a, 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 a kid, <laughs> yeah, a white a white kid's face. And the cops just see the white kid's face and just drive, drive off, like, oh, okay, he's just a white kid. So you know, this 
it's one of those things that it's coming up more and more. And fortunately, it is. You know, fortunately, there's action on it. But yeah, I personally feel that if around the time that this comic was made, a lot of people probably read this and was like, like this is some really. Uh, aggressively biased, you know, BS. Like, like this, like you know, like this is some, you know, propaganda uh, PSA platform piece. And a lot of people react to that because they just don't want to hear it. They really don't. Like, you know, like, like, like that's a very kind of incendiary joke in Key and Peele. Like, you know, kind of like, like indicting cops blanketly. That, like, you know, as soon as they see a black guy, you know, they, they immediately want to kill him. And that's obviously not something you want to say from every single cop in the country. But with the experience of a black person, so many black people have died at the hands of cops unjustly. I mean, you guys are talking about like you know it's it's very it's very relevant today. This has been going on oh, yeah. since like just like for like like the entire history of our existence in the country. It's only been reported, you know, recently. That's very. I mean, this, this it's it's been a fact of life, you know, um, especially in lower in- income uh, 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 communities, and I and I think. Uh, Orpheus makes a point about that, where like you know he is not just a black hero; he's a black hero to help uh, certain ty- types of people that just aren't getting enough of, uh, enough recognition. And I'm glad you brought up the reporting aspect because the next part here is in this story the media brings up the racial profiling as well when the police are questioning the deacons while looking for the a cop killer. The media says that the arrests are too brutal, the detainments were racially motivated, many of these people were not gang members. And that the tensions then rise between the community and the police. So this is the point where um, I wanted to bring up Ferguson, Missouri, because I feel like this situation in many ways parallels what we saw there. Um, how long ago was that? Like uh, six months last, or more? Yeah. I mean, it's, it was it's, last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in 2015, right? Yeah, was it 2015 or was it? I uh, maybe the beginning of the year was was when the verdict was read. Okay, so it might have even been 2014 then. Um, but what are your, your feelings on that? Well, again, I, I mean, like, it, it's one of those things where we can go, huh, that's just like Ferguson, but it's also, it's, it is, that is realistic. Um, I don't know if the media would be as, uh, against the cops as, as, and they are because it kind of, that kind of, uh, reflects on a very liberal and, and empathetic, uh, empathic society that would probably start – that would lend the idea that it would fix things because the way that the media is portrayed here is almost politically motivated, whereas the media actually in real life, it kind of just does it for sound bites. Like, you know, like, like oh, I'm black kid, shot again, but they don't really care. It's, it's kind of just like, you know, like, like, what do you think about it kind of thing, kind of like almost, you know, glorified gossip mongery. Oh, this is a very political episode. Oh. So um, – I mean, I, I don't um, think you, I don't think it's you're, one, you're wrong those, wrong to say that. I, I do think that in some cases that is what the media is doing, and I, I think you're right in pointing out at the the context of when this story was written that um, the writer was using it more to say like the media was trying to in in uh, incite social change. Thank you. Yeah, um, and I, I think this is something that only a black writer could really do as effectively as, as it has been done, because I, I plan on writing about this soon. I, I don't know if you guys are, I, I don't know if you guys are aware, but like I write about these kind of issues about race and comics elsewhere on other websites. I, I've written about um, uh, recent Superman comics that that evoke Ferguson. I've written about uh, Sam Wilson as the Captain America. Uh, I've written about you know races dealt in 60 Spider-Man comics. Like so, I, I've I've kind of had this in my mindset, and I think that like. 
uh, a thing I, I'm seeing often is that when these when these topics are brought in currently, it's often by from a perspective of a very sympathetic uh, writer who doesn't really speak from a, a perspective of trying to start a conversation, but just saying this is what's going on, this is wrong. And admirals that may be that doesn't really solve anything. I think that like what I like about this is that it doesn't necessarily solve anything. It introduces. It, the characters are very real. Orpheus is very believable in that, like he's just trying to help, but he's not. He doesn't have like a a cure all plan to fix the ills of you know the lower end of Gotham City. But um, Alex Simmons writes it from a very uh, a a calm yet very frustrated uh, point of view, and I think that he portrays you know Batman very well. He portrays Orpheus very well. He portrays Michael Atkins very well. Um, you know, Officer. Esther House is a bit one-dimensional, but um, oh, yeah, I, I, I think that like um, this kind of story really, really requ- demands nuance, and the most bleeding-heart liberal is ultimately useless if they don't recognize the complexities of the situation and the difficulties in you know bringing the conversation to its its uh, ultimate end goal in trying to you know solve a problem. So I, I like the fact that this wasn't just, uh, like I said before, platitudes. This wasn't just, um, you know, uh, crooked cops are bad, okay. It's kind of like, you know, like, like inviting the idea of there is bias. And they probably could have gone a little bit further with that. They, they probably could have, like, you know, had Harvey Bullock, you know, kind of looking a little, not racist, but like, you know, biased uh, in the way that he can be. But they, they kind of, they do kind of leave uh, the characters that we love uh, a bit more on the side of angels, I guess. I mean, you, you brought up, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, Dylan, but you, you brought up something there that I, I would like to talk about that I hadn't even thought of the portrayal of Harvey in an, in a negative light, because Harvey's kind of, to me, always been this like lovable, just a little bit, um, on the, the shadier side cop, but with a good heart, like, I don't think I would want to see him in that light, but I think that would make an incredible statement. Well, well he, he was a dirty cop when he was first introduced, straight up. Exactly, and you know he's always been a a dirty cop doing the doing doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Though, I mean, he started off as a very dirty cop. He's doing the wrong thing, and we see that in the Gotham TV show. He's very much not a you know in no way, shape, or form a good guy. He becomes a good guy later on as the show progresses. Right, and I think that's a great path but, for the Gotham TV show because you got to have an arc for these characters or else you're just kind of spinning your wheels. But having him, you know, I, and I, I agree with Donovan on this one, it would have been great to see him portrayed in a way that's not flattering and has an effect where you know, you always see people up in arms when a character changes in any way, shape, or form. Of course, we had Miles Morales. There's a huge backlash. Uh, Sam Wilson, a huge backlash. Uh, Jane Foster's Thor, huge backlash. Kamala Khan. Kamala Khan. Love that character so much, too. Um, yes. But having a character go through a major, you know, being portrayed in a negative light, especially a loved one, is a great way to draw attention. It's a great way to have, say, hey, you know, not there. if you have this, it, you know, this character has flaws and I'm bringing him to the light. I'm not going to allow you to keep him keep this in the shadows and it seems it would seem perfectly fitting for his character to be uh on a little bit on the wrong side of the story a little bit on the wrong side it's like take the hard line stance oh they're criminals you know and have that even have him corrected in the story and have him have to face that and develop as a character be even better because then you get character development as well as having a character you know a, a beloved character a named character that everyone knows dealing with that well it's it's 
I do want to acknowledge that it's very, very tricky. I mean, like, like the, you know, not every gangbanger is a devil. Not every, you know, cop is an angel and vice versa. But, like, uh, were you to do that, it would feel extremely bad from a writing perspective if you introduced, you know, oh, actually, he's kind of prejudiced. But at, by the end of the story, like, you know, he's, like, you know, singing and dancing with, like, you know, black preachers or whatever. That would feel like crap. Oh, yeah. But you would have to, like, kind of do it in an ongoing level where, like, you would need to uh, have – the, the 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 political osmosis bridge out into the other characters and make it an ongoing thing and because that this this is this is, these are the confines of the superhero genre because batman is a superhero comic it's really difficult to do that when, when you have a guy dressed like dracula fighting a clown <laughs> and true. that's that's just the nature of the the industry honestly and this is why i mean this is that there's no real bad guy here that's just kind of like you know what the industry is, and it's very. That's why this is a miniseries, and not, you know, Detective Comics eight hundred, whatever. Like it's it's extremely difficult to realistically portray that. I would encourage that to be done, but I acknowledge that would probably turn a lot of people off. Uh, maybe less so now than it would be when this was first written. Well, yeah. But you would need a long game, and you would need, if not a black writer, a black editor to make sure that it it didn't get you know messed up along the way. And that's an excellent point. That's really good. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, having him go through a character transformation in what five issues would be very short and very uh and as you say you know having him going from a very racist to like from archie bunker to you know i don't know a good analogous character for not racist for an, the anti-archie bunker the negative negative archie bunker it would, be like, it would condescend the, the exactly the... exactly so but i do agree and that's an excellent point if you do it over a long long term but you have to have certain uh facilities and certain people in place to keep that on track um and just to continue that very briefly before we probably should move on um i feel like that there was probably constraints on the writer by editorial because it it, as you were saying as far as some of these things you really need to do over a long haul and i feel like they said all right we will give you your five issue miniseries to tell your story but you can't really dramatically change any of the um uh, main characters you established know, established characters so i feel like i feel like what you're saying with with the with the african-american editor that you really do need something like that in order to kind of make an overarching change to a, a beloved character uh in the type of story that this is telling about you know representation and uh um, perception of of the african-american community so are either of you familiar with uh Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, issue one hundred and one. Is that the the old one where she becomes a black woman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I am familiar with that. God help uh, me, I am. Have you read it? I haven't. I've been wanting to. F- I can't find it anywhere. I read it. It's actually. I mean, it's it's it, it is what it is. But it actually is is better than I I was anticipating because. You know, uh, I mean, it, it sucks because, like, you know, the climax story. Now, Superman, I'm black. Will you marry me now? What? No. But like, uh, <laughs> wow. But, uh, but like, he says, you know, I, it's not because you're skin color. I can't marry anybody because I'm Superman. But, like, she legitimately, you know, experiences racism. And, uh, you know, this is never brought up again because this is like the 70s or the early or the late 60s. But it is an, an instance where a white character is trying to understand something that she can't from her own perspective. And I appreciate it for that. I was just thinking about that when you guys were talking and started. God, I haven't thought about that one in ages. And I, I was expecting it to be just absolutely horrible. I'm glad to know that it's not as horrible as I thought it would be. It's only half horrible. Only half as bad. I, what about the, uh, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run by Daniel Neil, Neil Adams? Like the, like the, you know, the 76 issue where, 
black guy comes up to Green Lantern and says, hey, I, you've saved the orange skins and you work for the blue skins and you've been considerable for the purple skins. There's only one skin you've not helped out. The black skins. I, I want to know why. Tell me that, Mr. Green Lantern. And Ryan Reynolds you know, falls to his knees and says, I can't. Like I don't know if you, have you ever read that. I haven't, I haven't read that one, but nice, nice Ryan Reynolds plug there. <laughs> that actually, I, I hear a lot of people bash that because I, I mean, I think even um, Ethan Van Skyver has said, "Well, he saved the he saved the world, idiot." So derp derp. But like I, as, as over the top as I love those comics uh, that run of Green Lantern Green Arrow because as political and like 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 oozily liberal as it is, I really appreciate you know they introduced John Stewart and I really appreciate the place it comes from. And I feel that like you know. Maybe it's not very smooth, but I, it comes from an incredibly empathic heart. And I think that, like, uh, it at least give it's the first time that the superheroes have dealt with race in that way, where, like, they acknowledge bias. You know, Hal Jordan is not racist, but that doesn't, you know, excuse him, you know, not using his powers to help low-end black communities because he has the power to do so. So those were instances where, like, you know, yes, they never lasted. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think those are interesting uh, comparisons compared to this one, which is written. You know, this is about a white character primarily, but it's written by a black author. So I think that it, it ends up being more successful. See, that sounds and excellent, right there. Like, yeah, and and the idea of them tackling head on those kind of those issues, and it's it's really paints you know that that white privilege where how how Jordan's never thought about it. He's never thought about you know, oh, I need to help the low end African American communities with this great power. It's just, oh yeah, I have all this power. I'm going to go save the world or whatever. And, I, and in fact, like, um, uh, I really like the first appearance of John Stewart because uh, John is in the, in the first first appearance is very very arrogant and abrasive and completely uses his powers mainly to to route out a, a racist senator, and he puts off Hal because Hal just doesn't see. I mean, the guy's blatantly racist and even Hal knows it, but he doesn't see like a plot brewing and John can, and that's an example of the diversity of character. Where you have a black character acting realistically black, in that like, okay, I I'm, I'm picking up on something that that you're just not getting, and there's no time for you to listen to me, so screw you, I'm going to do this, and and then at the end, like, like Cal says, I'll admit, John, your style turned me off. I'm, I'm not reading this, I'm just going this <laughs> I'm, my own. but like, but like, uh, it's an example of like this where you have Batman and. Stop me if I'm getting ahead of myself, but like Batman's like, you know, well, there are heroes of color and I, I protect everybody. You know, nobody's you – know, but but Orpheus is like, but you're not getting what I'm telling you. We you, actually, don't, you don't understand where I'm coming from. We actually do have a talking point on that. So let's so, just jump into that. Oh, yeah, that's great. We yeah, we're jumping into representation now. And then we can come back to the other stuff. That yeah. We, All right, so, yeah, exactly what you're talking about. You know, there – and it's something that I really wanted to bring up is in the Bat family, as it sits at this time – there is one, maybe two, uh, people of color on the Bat family. You, of course, have Batgirl, who is Asian, but she is literally head-to-toe covered. You could not be able to tell where she wears the full face yes. mask, all that. So, now, the other one is Huntress, who is Italian, and according to Wikipedia, I know it, it's one of those really weird things where, like, according to Wikipedia, Italians are Caucasian, but we've also read that Italian people were not considered Caucasian, so it's, it's one of those weird things. It's, mm-hmm. I, I'm and I'm not a subject matter expert by any stretch of the measure, so it's, it's kind of hard to to say that Huntress, as an Italian, is a person of color or not. Well, also like her costume, uh, all of her costumes reveal her to be like I would like if you didn't know that she's recognizably white. Yeah, she looks. She, she's drawn very Caucasian, very light skinned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. You know, and she wasn't uh, Italian pre-crisis. She was Bruce Wayne's daughter. 
I thought that was an Elseworld. No, no, no uh, pre-crisis. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, Earth, pre-crisis Earth, Earth two. two. Yeah, yeah that's Earth two. So, never mind. Cut that out. <laughs> oh no, we're leaving that one in, by the way. Uh, so no, but you have, you know, one person of color on the team who's completely head to toe covered, who no one else but Batman and the Bat Family would know as a person of color. So in the Bat Family, it's, and you're talking about Gotham, a very crime ridden place, a, a place of lower income families, of you know, gang gang violence and 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 everything that the plight that comes with low low income and poverty line community, and there's not a single person of color on the Bat family that anyone would know about. Well, it's also the fact that Batman comes from it from a from an extremely lucky position because yeah. he's a guy, he's a crime fighter who who fights every kind of criminal. But he's a crime fighter who's all you know, who daylights as a billionaire who gets to flirt with supermodels and enjoy making lots more money to add to his already large money that he didn't actually earn himself. His dad gave it to him as in the way of dying. And I think this story kind of this story kind of uh, shines a lamp on the childlike inherent nature of the Bruce Wayne character uh, in that like. You know, he's you know he was a rich kid who got his parents killed from from, from crime that should not have, that ideally should not have happened to somebody of his status. So he responds in a very childlike way. Now I'm not trying to indict the character, but I think that like psychologically that's what's going on with with Bruce Wayne. Um, but he thinks to himself, you know, this will never happen to anybody. So he so he would include people of color, but he doesn't stop to think how that affects you know class. You know, and yes, there's the Wayne Foundation. You know, yes, you know, there's an orphanage uh, foundation that he has, but. He's so wrapped up in justice by ways of vengeance, although not not so much, that he is kind of at a uh, at an impasse where he doesn't really connect the dots. Um, I, I think I think you guys are about to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, it, it, there's a, a big commentary there to be said about the classism of Batman, where you have a very rich guy who goes out and basically beats up on the mentally ill and poor. You know, all the time. All the time. Like who? Who? Do, who are a majority of his villains? People with severe mental problems. Uh, Joker, Two Face, uh, the Poison Ivy. What's that? Riddler. Uh, Poison Ivy. Poison Riddler. Ivy. Riddler. Uh, the uh, ventriloquist. You know, oh, yeah. All these characters are characters with with severe mental problems, and all their henchmen are probably poor guys. You know, guys are are looking for a job who get hired on by Two-Face, by Penguin, by someone who's willing to pay them so they jump on because it's the only way they make money. So it's the poor and the mentally ill that, that a rich white guy is beaten up on. Well, you guys watch like guys... Batman. I mean... <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, I think uh, that's that's just... we're kind of That's kind of the nature of the superhero genre that, as it is now. You guys watch Batman the Animated Series, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like 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 uh, that story that they did where Dick Grayson becomes Nightwing. The big breaking was him was like when Batman and Robin were chasing down the henchman of the Joker, and that henchman turned out to be a man with with a, with a wife and child who was trying to earn money, and Batman treats him like an ordinary criminal, and Dick Grayson recognizes that. I think this is a perfect characterization where Dick Grayson recognizes that Batman doesn't, and he completely just stops like 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 this is not what I want to be, and this is. The, this is I like this, which is interesting how the scene we're on now, as I have the page open, where Batman calls up Dick and uh, says, "What do I represent to the non-criminals?" I, I think this is my favorite scene in the story, personally. And yeah, yeah. and we did have that written down here. Um, so my question to Dylan and to you is, what do you make of the call between Batman and Nightwing? And before you answer, I'll give you my uh, point here. 
I think Batman was making progress toward treating Nightwing as an equal and maybe even a better in the aspect that Dick is both a hero and a police officer. And one thing I um, got from the conversation we just had there about Bruce being, you know, of the privilege that he is of being rich and not needing to have a day job. Look at in the Nightwing title, the struggles Dick has of trying to maintain his job as a police officer and at nighttime as a superhero and the strain that's putting on his body and his mind. Dom, won't you go ahead and go? Uh, since since you're you're getting started on that one anyway. Um, I wanted to wait. I, I feel like I keep on stealing everybody's thunder. So if you guys want, I'll, I'll go last. Then we'll I, I'll jump in. Then uh, you know, I I agree. It, it's really good to see now. You know, it, it, painting it in the light of what we've been talking about. You know, Grayson works in Bloodhaven, which is poor Gotham. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> Gotham without the money that what little Gotham had. So. Nightwing, and I agree with John's point that this is very much a character development point between Batman and Nightwing. But on the larger scale, it's also, you know, Batman saying, "Hey, Nightwing kind of has experience on two fronts that I only have on one front." In so much that Dick is a cop, so it's it's I really enjoyed. It. I really thought it was a great scene, and a great uh, communication and, and uh, development for both characters, especially Batman, though. Yeah, because Bruce is going to Dick. In a completely like, uh, how do I phrase this? Like, like, like he is on a lower at level coming to Dick. He's not saying, "Now, tell me about this." Like he's he, he's like saying, "Like, listen." Um, he, he doesn't come out and say, "I don't understand this element." Can you explain it to me? But he's he's questioning himself in a way that Batman can, and Dick picks up on it. Uh, not maybe maybe not specifically, but he picks on uh, where he's kind of coming from. And I like uh, the line, I mean, I, I, I'm reaching a new understanding, a, a new limit, where Batman's kind of down. He's like, he's, he, doesn't see, he doesn't see an immediate solution to what he can do. And I think it's interesting because, like, you know, with Dick Grayson specifically being a very, like, social um, character. I know there was one scene from, I forget which story it was, but there was a scene in the 90s where Nightwing was was doing something and it involved i, th- I think one scene in, in involved like, i think maybe he saved a hooker or whatever and like he spent a couple of panels like uh uh you know i don't know like, like kind of being silly and, and making uh the prostitutes laugh and that was an element of you know understanding and, and uh goodwill towards uh a type of person that the society really does not treat very well you know like, like a sex worker in that way you know, whether whether what you feel that, that, that what they're doing is is morally just or not like they, they are subject to a lot of you know, subhuman behavior uh, by other people, and so Nightwing can, can you know, in the, at least innately understands that. You know, him not coming from a rich background, at least not originally, and Bruce not 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 really getting that. So the the, the t- discussion with Orpheus kind of really obviously opens his eyes, and I would have loved to see this kind of followed up followed up upon because until I read the story, I never thought that Bruce really questioned himself in this way, and. Uh, I think in a perfect world, this would be a major turning point for the character. Well, and you, you see how Bruce Wayne, or how I should say Batman, talks to the other characters uh, throughout the stories. You know, he's very much he calls Oracle, says, "I need this. This is what I have. Get information. Go." Whereas when he's calling Dick, it's much more of a vulnerable position he's calling him from. At least in this story, and as Donovan was saying, I would love to see this continue forward. I mean, we had this conversation during our last uh, Nightwing story, I believe where we said we wanted to see him continue to become 
his own character, and we liked the elements that that were they were putting in to separate him, like being the cop, yeah, um, and you know trying to create his own rogues gallery and then destroying half of them. But that's a whole other <laughs> thing uh, from the last Nightwing story we did. But yeah, I definitely would like to see them come back to this point. And Donovan, you brought up the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the difference between Batman and the police. Um, and that kind of is the driving force for this call was his conversation with uh, Commissioner Akins. And um, <laughs> Commissioner basically says that fear works for Batman, but not for the police, which I think is a really boiled down um, simple way to describe the difference between how Batman operates and how the police operates and the things that the police can do that Batman can't do and the things that Batman can do that the police can't do. And I really thought that was an excellent uh, um either statement or um, realization by the writer and putting that into, into the story. Um, to, to continue on that, the police have more restrictions on how they can operate. Uh, the shadow of the badge is what Commissioner Aiken called it. And that is something I also would like to see the explored more. And with Gotham Central starting soon in, in the chronology that we're going through with Bat Books for Beginners, I'm hoping that's a key element to that uh, title. Um, I don't remember actually. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's interesting because, again, the limitation like you we described earlier, Batman is basically like, you know this this rich guy who dresses up and, and beats up you know escaped mentally mentally handicapped patients, uh, which is a very kind of like you know cynical way to look at it, but it can't be boiled down in that way. And that the way the reason why we're, we can boil it down in that way is because the restrictions and demands of the superhero genre and the comic book industry. Batman's the most high, like, highest selling character right now. He perennially is. And a certain level of investigation... This is the thing about minority portrayal and diversity in comics. A certain level of investigation eventually leads to an entire upending of the industry, which I don't think it can be is a bad thing. I think it's probably a good thing. But the way in which we enjoy the comic book industry and the superhero genre specifically, mainly the superhero genre specifically now, is a way in which kind of leaves certain people out in the cold. Yes, we have uh, diverse characters. Like he says, you know, we have heroes of color. There's Steel. There's Steel. Uh, Black Lightning, I guess. Static Shock. Uh, John Stewart, you brought up earlier. Uh, yeah, Green Lantern, Static. But. You know, uh, it's it's complicated. Like, not only are they just a, a, a uh, finite handful. You know, the, the, the is static every black teenager is is Green Lantern every black military character because there's such a wealth. And I, I argue about this to other people before. Like, there's such an endless wealth of white characters that you can explore endless wells of personas within that framework. But you know, oftentimes. And not all the time. I don't want to say like every single comic that has a, a character of color immediately sucks because they don't get it right. But it's it's just tricky because you know they will fulfill the needs of should should their uh, their race be commented on, they will fulfill the needs of that, or they will uh, just it will just not be commented on. Like if you don't remark on it, are they just white characters in blackface? If you do remark upon it, are they stereotypes? And uh, I think I got away from the, the main point. Uh, Batman and the Police, I think, is one of those things where if the, if you examine the differences, then it kind of calls out the idea of Batman as a character. Now, obviously, he's needed in the framework of, of his stories because police can't handle the Joker, or as I argued on Gotham Chronicle, Mr. Freeze. But um, uh, so, so the supervillain element kind of demands him. But when you have stories like these where there really aren't any supervillains whatsoever, it does – muddy the waters a bit and if you want to investigate that like alex simmons and Dwayne taylor have investigate it 
but it's one of those things that's going to take a long time, longer than five issues, and would be very beneficial towards the industry and the genre if you kind of went beyond that. And that's, you know, that's, again, in a, in a better world, we may have been able to see more from this. Yeah, and you brought up a really good point there that I wanted to bring up in this section, which, to me, the best Batman stories involve Batman doing what the police can't, not just him being better at police work than they are. And I feel like this story was just Batman being better at police work than the police were. And so, to me, that that hurts it a little bit. Um, but I also understand that that's not the, the key element to this story. The key element to this story is the discussion on representation and and uh, race in in the uh, comic universe. Oh, and like Donovan was saying, you know, th- this is a w- when you have a supervillain in the story, that's where Batman shines because he does what the police can't, dealing with supervillains. Whereas when you put him in a story without a supervillain, you need to you need to have a much more character driven story almost to develop the Batman character and develop the personalities around him, including the police force guys, including the, uh, the, the bat family characters. And in this instance, including Orpheus, you know, this was an introduction for Orpheus, but I thought this was phenomenal for character development. I do agree that Batman was just a better cop in this realistically, but I also understand that they went that way because they were trying to introduce a new character. Yeah, I, I understand it. I'm just pointing out that to me, it's a minor shortcoming. To oh, yeah. Well, also, it, it also, in that way, might be thematic. You know, making it grounded to where supervillains might might uh, dilute the message or dilute the story the story idea and dilute what they're trying to say. Um, like, what does the Joker have to do with race? <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, I think in that way, aligning Batman more towards just, you know, a cop in a costume might have been necessary for this type of story. Although, I, I, I get your point. And I think that's why... Um, I, I, like in this era, like the late '80s, or I'm sorry, the late '90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of like, you know, very, very like, like Law and Order, police procedural detective stories by the likes of Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka, which were very hit and miss for me. I mean, sometimes they were just straight up kind of boring, yeah. And I don't know why we were getting them, but like, but like, I, I think in this instance, it honestly, I mean, they, and they reference continuity here. There, there are um, very clear oblique references to the Killing Joke. There's a direct reference to uh, the Nightfall. Uh, uh, two actually, yes. so I, li- I like the fact that like this isn't like you know an Elseworlds story necessarily, but it, it, it's it's so grounded and in, in, I won't say inconsequential, but it doesn't rely on the conventions of the superhero tropes that you know kind of excises them, even though you kind of you, you acknowledge that they are exist out there, kind of serves the, uh, is like the best of both worlds. That's a great point. Um, I'm, uh... I think we're going to move on to the next one, which is commentary on gang members. No, we skipped oh, one. We skipped oh. um, so you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the representation um, about the Bat family. So there is a small bit in here about Batman deciding who operates in Gotham. And to me, this seemed like a continuation or extension of the Hunter's conversation we saw in, in Call for Blood. Um, it's primarily between him and Orpheus. And Orpheus brings up that Batman doesn't choose the civil servants, meaning the police, the fire, and the medical. But Batman counters that by saying they're screened and trained by, you know, competent people. And the implication there is that Batman screens and trains who he lets operate in Gotham. So I was just kind of your your thoughts on that and also kind of maybe tied into the representation, like should Batman... Uh, get some more people or maybe replace some people because i feel like we're we're at a high number of operatives at this time because we have azrael we have huntress we have 
Batgirl, Robin, now spoilers. So, I mean, we're getting uh, a really big Bat family at this time in, in comics uh, history. This is, what, this is when it was starting to happen. I mean, like, by the end of this decade, it was, it was like, the classic Batman family that people miss after 2011. But um, are you saying that like, there should be, like, a Bat family affirmative action thing where, like, you kind of brings in some Well, body? not necessarily affirmative action, but, you know, why is it that every single member of the Bat family up to this point was right. some form of white? Aside from well, Batgirl, who was covered, as we mentioned, head to toe. And Batgirl was created specifically, like, like she was mainly created because Scott Peterson wanted Batgirl again. But he also, but, but he he said that like he made her have Chinese because why not? Like 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 when you think about creating a new character, uh, I mean, I've said this before. Like 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 there, and realistically, there does not need to be a single new Caucasian comic character created ever again because there are legitimately thousands of them out there. And it was the kind of thing that that, that, that added that diversity into the uh, concentric character in Bat Family, which was sorely needed. I think that like there was an interesting thing that you brought up, where like uh, the whole screening process that's mentioned, where you know, do you pick up, who, you know, uh, you don't choose the cops, why you choose the people who uh, roam the rooftops? Well, those people are screened, and I, I screen them too. Which is like it, it's early, it's introduced uh, throughout this, but it's, in that instance, it's kind of ignored that like. Oftentimes he doesn't approve of the Huntress, or there are corrupt cops in Gotham City, as we as we previously mentioned. So it's like, obviously those screen processes, you know, aren't, aren't foolproof. So what? Yeah. <laughs> I have to imagine that was intentional, but they, they don't follow up on it, so it kind of leaves a question mark up in the air. I, like, I, I agree uh, with you completely, and that's something I was actually going to bring up. He beat me too. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for no, doing that. I apologize. No, dude, that's excellent that you're doing it. It's, it's awesome that you're that we're on the same page on a lot of this stuff. And a lot of it is, you know, new perspective. But exactly, you know, if there's a, a a civil servant screening process in place, is it that good for Gotham at the very least? And likewise, as you mentioned, he doesn't approve a huntress, but he still allows her to operate. He doesn't approve of Catwoman, but you know, sometimes he they're on the same side, that sometimes they're not. You know, so he, he, the the authoritarian Batman here is what I like to think of it as. Is he's kind of you know he's he's positioning himself as the accepted force. He is the vigilante that they're okay with. That everyone's kind of accepted as a, a institution in Gotham. Whereas mm-hmm. in reality, dude is still a vigilante. Dude is still operating outside the law. Yeah, destroying property and throwing people through windows as he does in the story. Exactly. Um, and, and like I mean, even like you know. That an issue too, like you know, the guys like you know, you you can't do anything. I'm under police custody. It's, it's like you, do you really think that people could stop me? And that, that's that's the typical Batman threatening. But the idea that he could do that is like you know, obviously criminal. So, exactly. <laughs> and again, like you know, I, I'm not saying like you know that's why Batman should never exist. But like it's it, it's a combination of uh, how the character has been has evolved and the needs of the story, but it, it, which makes this story tricky to analyzed to its to, to the nth degree because you're dealing with real world uh, topics like diversity. Oh, of course. Well, and they also brought up along that fact, you know, obviously we we don't necessarily approve of someone working outside the law, you know, threatening physical harm on on uh, captured criminals or soon to be captured criminals, but you also get that line in the police station in here. I believe it was from um, oh, what's your name? Montoya? Montoya? Uh, that these guys are hiding behind the law. They know what we can do, and they're just hiding behind it, and they're and they're really tying our hands. So it's kind of, I think I think it's one of those things where he's raising the question of, of, uh, are the police enough? Do we need 
the superheroes, but then also the question of, you know, we have this white power fantasy, this epitome of white privilege dictating who's going to be the superheroes. So I think it's I think it's two commentaries in one kind of there. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I mean, I mean, I mean even then, there's there's you know the off tale the oft told idea uh, which Law and Order does all the time. Where like, does the legal system really work in favor of the victims, in favor of true justice? It's, is it just a cushion for criminals to get off scot free when they can, no matter what their race? And that's that's a very common thing to talk about. But it is it is a legitimate thing to talk about. And in that instance, it was raised ever so slightly. Well, and that's an entire conversation we can have another time because that, that is an entire conversation. Yeah, and I think we've already pointed out that this story is too short for all the stuff that it's trying to comment on and nothing really gets the full attention that maybe it, it deserves. Um, so we'll move on to our, our next point here, which is the commentary on gang membership within the minority community. In this case, it's the African-American community. Um, Orpheus tells the Deacon gang member that he will help any innocent African-American, but he will also stop anyone selling out his community. And he mentions putting guns in the hands of children and also selling drugs to his own community. He sure does. <laughs> I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole because I'm not in a position to speak on that. Well, neither am I. I've never been a gang member. so. <laughs> um, I, and, and I don't know. That, that was a very like, Spike Lee-esque kind of thing where often Spike Lee, if he's not yelling at white people, he's yelling at black people. Uh and, and which which is a conversation that always needs to be had, but like uh, I felt that was that made the character believable because he's not only just you know venting frustration at Batman for the lack of uh, uh, visibility uh, representation in the in the DC superhero community, but he's also saying I'm not you know picking favorites. It's it's sort of like the whole goes back to the whole like you know is it blue over black kind of thing that that the community was throwing at Atkins. Where it's like, you know, who are you really working for? Orpheus says he's working for the for the the hearts, you know, hearts and minds of his people, and that means routing out members of you know uh, some of his own people that are poisoning the rest, poisoning the children, and that I don't I don't know, I mean that is that can be complex. That that's very wire esque, but it's it's not a very complex concept. I don't feel um, in that. Well, actually, I, I take that back. It is. But it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I feel that uh, uh, white America often kind of flips a coin as to whether they feel like all these people are, you know, just thugs or whatever, or well, society must understand their plight. And that's kind of where the, comp- the complex nature of race gets into because everybody's story is different. A lot of them are, can be similar, but there's also very different circumstances. And to assign many things as as one or the other can you know uh kind of you know muddy up the the situation or whatever basically essentially i mean i i I don't know if it's hard to conceive but it's 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 also uh not easy to fix well in the context of the story you know the the deacon brings up that the circum that during no man's land no one was coming to the hill no one was going to these poor neighborhoods until Tim Drake was stuck there, until Tim Drake got in trouble and caught in the hills, no one was setting foot in there. No one was setting foot in. And uh, Key and Pill has a great reference to this, and I love that show, so I'm going to keep bringing it up. Where it's like uh, Keegan Michael Key was a news reporter, and they're like, 
a little white girl's a little girl's gone missing. Oh wait, last name Rodriguez. No one cares. A little white. Yeah. Oh, they found the white baby. Let's checking on the white baby. It's been two hours since we checked up on it. It's been ten minutes since we checked up on the little white baby that's been found. Let's go back. You know, it's one of those things where you see a lot whenever a poor or a minority person goes missing. There's much less of a surge to find them. There's much less of a you know news event than when a little white girl goes missing or a little white child. And that's that's if any person that's the part that kind of just scares me the most. It's like at the end of the day, my existence and all the things I've gone through and all the things I've experienced, like you know, going going through school, you know, getting good grades, getting bad grades, having fights, making friends, dating, learning things, getting insight on some things, you know, realizing that I don't know things about other things, you know, scratching an itch, you know, choking on water. Um, getting getting fat and full on food, you know, exercising, blinking, waking up, sleeping, all that is completely erased because my my you know the melanin in my skin isn't appealing to people on 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 you know CNN. That is probably the most scary and depressing element of being black in America, and it's proven each and every time to be a real thing because it's it just as much progress as people like to say, and as much as as much as people smile at the image of Martin Luther King. And uh, just just genuinely say that you know I, I I'm not racist or I, I don't have this or that and none of this is, none of this is an element like it's like there's 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 a uh, a person by person retcon of what we tell ourselves is real when these things happen I mean the fact that like you know you can cherish the life of one of of one person over the other just by the color of your skin is truly sickening and and it's it's and it's much worse in other countries. But it's one of those things that, like, 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 where, how, how cozy is the comfort level where you can put someone's life over the other just because, just because of what, what you have in common with them, and that's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those things where I, 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 I wish people who are from different walks of life would really help realize that it is wrong. That is wrong, and. <laughs> oh, for a second. <laughs> I'm right there with you, you know. <laughs> so the last point we really have here is uh, or is Orpheus himself, and and it's, it's a question: is is this a character who should stick around Gotham and stick around the Batman universe? Uh, the first. Do you guys one. know what happens to him? What's that? Do you guys know what happens to him? Yes, I do. Okay. I do know, uh, and it's very, very sad. I mean, we might you, as well just just share it with with the listeners. The reason we're, we're asking the, this question is because we know he doesn't stick around. He gets killed. Yeah, he comes back in um, war games, war games, and and gets killed in that story. Which unceremoniously. I I don't necessarily want to delve too deep into the poli- the uh, comic book politics around that, but. Why would you kill a character rather than just let it go off into obscurity? That that kind of had me wondering when I read that. Well, I, I'm almost you know, and this is going to sound really bad, but let me explain myself. I'm glad they killed him instead of let him wander off into obscurity because that means he had a definitive end, and it wasn't just people lost interest in him. Now I don't know the politics surrounding it, unfortunately, so I'm gonna have to get with you after this. But uh, well, I think the politics surrounding it honestly was the same as the politics surrounding like let's kill off Stephanie Brown in the story that like they didn't really consider. Anybody who liked the character or the character themselves, they just kind of wanted to tell their story, which sucked in the first place. Yeah, that, that definitely sucks. And and that's the thing. It's like from what little I've seen of him, and I, I mean, I've read ahead on Wikipedia. That's the only reason I know he dies, but because I haven't read War Games yet. But I've I really enjoyed this character. And it's like, but wait, no, he's a cool character. He's got awesome 
mindset and he brings something that the Bat family sorely lacks and I really enjoy this and I like this and then they kill him. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll be I'll be honest. I didn't I've not read this before. I had only seen him like once in a random like I think Nightwing issue, or maybe it was Gotham Knights, uh, during Bruce Wayne Murder Refuge, we kinda just shows up and Nightwing kinda rolls his eyes at him. I knew he was a thing, but he was around so briefly that I honestly was not very familiar with the character. Um but now that I've read this it's like, oh my god, what a waste. This is around the same... I mean, his death was around the same time that they quote-unquote kill off Stephanie Brown. It's right before they destroy Sandra Kane's character. You know, it's right around the time where they irrevoc- irrevocably changed uh, Tim Drake. It's right around the same time that uh, Devin Grayson was fired and her story's changed. It's around the same time that Chuck Dixon was ousted. So, like, I mean, I, I, obviously, this is all Dana Dio's fault. But, <laughs> oh, but, yeah. but um, it's, just, it's one of those things where it's like, I was completely ignorant, I, I was completely ignorant of Orpheus. Reading the story now, I'm like, ah, oh, jeez. It's an awesome character. I've... He should have. He should have. He, he should have stayed and been more grown, more closer to the Bat family. He really should have. Oh, agreed, 100. percent I mean, I, while I like this character, I agree with both of you. The only question that I have regarding that, and this has nothing to do with the color of his skin or anything like that, is what does he bring to the Batman universe that would differentiate himself from other members of the Bat family? I mean, and you said it doesn't have anything to do with the color skin, but that is a big part of it. It's not just the fact that he's representative of a different group. It's, well, I think it's his personality. Yeah, in, the personality. In, in the way that he, that he is aware of what his presence in Gotham City does for people. It's not just like, you know, well, he's a black character, but like he's a black character who uses his blackness to help other, you know, to, to help his own his own people. And um, as I remember you guys talked about this uh, when you talked about Cassandra Cain, you know, like, like her being taught to be a detective and being a martial artist, how is that different than any other, any other character? And in the context in the universe of the story, maybe the, a lot of these fall, you know, in line with each other. But in the, in the, in the larger element of storytelling for the readers, characters like Cassandra Cain and Orpheus, uh, just because they might be similar to other characters in terms of skill set, doesn't mean does doesn't negate their their worthwhileness for the demographic and community that, that people can relate to. And that's the part that we can't speak to, not being a part of the non-white community. <laughs> um, and without sounding like we're white explaining. Yes, exactly. And and I I totally recognize that. It's just it seems to me, and this is just my own probably biased opinion. That if a character is too close to another character, then it kind of becomes a popularity contest. And if one that maybe should be there for representation isn't as popular as the other one, the publisher is probably likely to get rid of that one instead of the one that that's selling more books. And that's very unfortunate. So I, I, I'm not trying to be mean or, or no, anything that like that. I, I'm just... I, th- I feel like all characters need to have some sort of distinguishing factor, no matter what the color of their skin is, in order for them to really effectively, for a publisher, stick around. Well, and, and the thing is, when you're talking the Bat family, they all kind of have the same skill set. You're not talking superheroes here, where they all have their own powers. They're all they're rich white people. <laughs> they're all rich white people. And, and that, is, that is a problem that the Bat family has, especially as I mentioned how many characters we're getting into now, especially with the addition of Spoiler very recently in the, in the time period that we're covering, is that you have like seven or eight characters that are all only slightly differentiated amongst themselves. And so... Right it's really hard to sustain that many characters because let's say that for instance, 
you recognize that these seven or eight characters are all pretty much the same and you pick one that's your favorite and you read that one and let's say it's Azrael and then somebody else picks their favorite and let's say it's Nightwing and another person it's Batgirl and, and so on and so forth. You've just split your market share amongst seven different books so it looks bad because while you're se- selling you know, seven different books at a, at a reasonable amount, if you sold one book to all seven of those people, it would look fantastic. So, from well, I don't know if I agree side, with that because, um, I don't know, because, because like, a lot of, I know for the sales, for, like, for instance, Chuck Dixon, a lot of his books that he wrote, a lot of people were buying the same of. Like, people were buying and reading Robin and Nightwing. Uh, at this moment, at the, end of this, at the end of this miniseries, you have Batman, Bruce Wayne, Robin, Tim Drake, Nightwing, uh, Oracle and Birds of Prey, spoiler appearing in Robin, uh, Cassandra Cain's Batgirl comic, and now Orpheus is at least in 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 the ether. You have you know uh, Tim Drake, Bruce Wayne, but you also have uh, uh, Oracle who is in a wheelchair. You have uh, a, a, a diverse character in both uh, Cassandra Cain who has her own book and Orpheus. You have um, different uh, different. Uh, um, um, Financial background and Stephanie Brown comes from the suburbs, you know, kind of a very low end uh, part of Gotham City. So I think that, like, I, I don't know if I would agree. That, I think that the, the, the diversity of characters, whether they're uh, white or not, actually was very appealing uh, in the uh, in the fandom at the time. And I think I think I think that's what people really miss now because they're a lot more homogenized. Tim Drake's a lot less different than he used to be, and it's a lot more of a militarized uh, homogenization these days. Whereas, or as ten years ago, these were different characters with not only different backgrounds and different personalities. And granted, they might be diversified, you know, kind of like cutting up the the market share. But I feel that though that was that never really detrimented the sales of uh, the bad books, in my opinion. Okay, and I was just somewhat playing devil's advocate there because I agree with you 100% that this era is fast becoming one of my favorites. Because yeah, I can see the differentiation between all of them. Um, you know, having read a lot of the stuff, but I mean, I was saying if you just kind of look at it on a surface level and and kind of from strictly a, a sales numbers level, um, that potentially could be a problem. It, more of a sales department, less of a you know actual anything that has to do with comic books department. Yeah. So sorry. Well, no, and and you're not. I, I I have to disagree a little bit with Don in here and agree with uh, Tom in some too. People are going to buy multiple books if they really like multiple characters. But you're still going to have people who aren't a fan of Tim Drake who are going to buy Tim Drake. People who aren't a fan of Stephanie Brown are going to buy Stephanie Brown. So you're still going to lose out some. But I think overall people are going to buy – are more likely to buy multiple books if there's multiple characters. I think people are more likely to buy characters that are related to Batman rather than Vibe or Metamorpho. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely 100% hey, recognize hey, hey. that. And, Don't hate on and, Vibe. All right, five is my jam. <laughs> I, I definitely see that, and the publishers obviously saw that because that's why we have, you know, f- uh, if you're paying attention to the recent comics casts, um, like 50% of DC sales are Bat titles. So yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that this the Batman universe is appealing to people, and people are likely buying several books within. That. And I feel that completely stems from what they've been doing like 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, I really, I mean, I don't know. Why they changed as much as they did, but uh, there's so much of like you know we love the Bat Family, we love all these characters that came from the work put in here with K- 
Cassandra Kane with Birds of Prey, Nightwing, Robin, Detective Comics, Gotham Knights, uh, Orpheus uh, Rising miniseries. I mean, again, I don't know how many people actually read this miniseries, but like the concept of the Bat Family that is now that they're trying to rebuild, that didn't come from the internet. That, that they they were doing that twenty years ago, and they, you know, well, stuff canned it. So of course, and you know, it's it's all about paying dividends down the line, and fortunately. They they put in the legwork. They put in the the time to develop these characters and develop these stories, so that down the line it paid those dividends. Mm-hmm. So I think that brings us about to the end of our uh, our, our discussion. So uh, Tommy, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, your rating? What you thought about this story? I think that everything we talked about had had like uh, we really didn't talk about like the, the actual details of the story, and I think that's for beyond the the, the larger reason, which is why we didn't. Like the story is fairly straightforward. It's a you know it's a it's a cops and robbers crooked cop story. It's not I don't know if that story's investment, but like what's going on like the political social elements that are explicitly brought up and kind of brought to the forefront are a lot more worthwhile. And I've never read a Batman story like this. I must say and I've read a lot, but I was I, I appreciate uh, you guys inviting me on here and giving me the chance to read this because I feel a lot more informed on the potential that was going on that is still being squandered. So I. Uh, <laughs> mainly uh, mainly for and, and you know actually and this was obviously intentional this wasn't like we were getting something out of it that's not there so i'll give it a, a strong uh four out of five veterans you know what man and i'm in the same boat as you it, it is a fairly straightforward story but the the social commentary and really the character that of orpheus and what he brings to the table and just what what comes forward out of out of this story as far as the social commentary and the all just everything that that's built here really really impressed me and, and yeah it's a fairly straightforward story but just everything around it everything that's contained in the story that isn't the plot itself is just so phenomenal i'm right there with you on a four out of five batterings john yeah i my nitpicks are really just nitpicks so i kind of have to agree with both of you you know four out of five just because of i, I hate to use this word but the novelty because there, there weren't stories like this being written at that time. And the fact that someone took a chance and let uh, Alex Simmons write this story and it got published and hopefully got people talking is a big deal. And I, I recognize that and I'm thankful for that. And um, hopefully there's more because we still need it, unfortunately. I mean, just look at the world around us. Um, the, a lot of these issues that were brought up in this story are still issues today, 15 years later. And that's sad. So hopefully we get more stories like this that can push the the commentary and conversation. the the conversation and, and the, the thinking about these issues and lead to people taking action with these issues. So um, so I, that gives our overall rating to be four out of five since we yeah, all agree. We all a, a consensus. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> right. All right. So for, uh, if you like what we say, you think we're crazy, think Donovan's doing a great job. Be sure and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think on the page on this episode's page of thebatmanuniverse.net. If you'd like to hear more of what we do, John and I, please check out Arc Reactions Podcast, where we talk about a wider variety of comic book stories. You can find that at arcreactionspodcast.blogspot.com. Donovan, you mentioned some of your writing. Why don't you go ahead and give the information for that? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, the main place, I, I plan to do some more writing pertaining to Batman and these issues in, on the BatmanUniverse.net. But you can uh, see uh, stuff I've referenced. Uh, there is a, uh, a comic book blog called the, the Hooded Utilitarian 
that is edited by uh, uh, a prolific writer named Noah Berlansky that talks about comics and how they are in, in ways which they are socially and culturally relevant. And I've talked about a lot of the kind of stuff I've referenced here. Uh, you can just uh, seek out thehoodieutilitarian.com and search my name, and I have about half a dozen essays published there. Um, and that's as of now. That, that if you want to see more of that, that's where you would find me. I do, I do a couple of the podcasts, but they're a bit off topic, so I, I'm not worried about pipping them right here. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to pip them, man, go ahead. Uh, you can hear me on the Gotham Chronicle. I, I I am with Joshua Lappin Bertoni talking about uh, a weekly sh- talk back show on Gotham, uh, which I don't really like, but but uh, he 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 gives it the benefit of the doubt. We have a very lively discussion each week. Although the show's on hiatus right now, but it will probably be back. It will be back in March, so you should still hear us then. And I am on the comic book film review along with Josh uh, Stella and our friend Chris. We talk about comic book movies once a month each month. And um, as of this recording, we recorded. Uh, Peanuts, uh, the two, uh, the uh, 2015 movie, and um, by the time this comes out, we will have done uh, Iron Man three, which we've actually not recorded yet, but we will do once you hit this episode. So uh, check that out at we're on iTunes, we're also on Facebook, and our Lipson page is CBF Review Review spelled R E V U E dot Lipson dot com. I was saying, all right, thanks very much, Donovan, and it was a great. Uh, great time having you on, man. Thanks so much for joining in with us. The, uh, thank you next... very much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. The next episode that we'll be covering is Catwoman, Dark End of the Street, next month here on Bat Books for Beginners. And uh, the credits for this are for Batman Orpheus Rising, which ran from October 2001 to February 2002, was written by Alex Simmons. The artist was Dwayne Turner. And editor was Michael Wright. So thank you guys for listening and join us next time. 